Hi there, thanks for downloading and listening to the 4 Million Years Later podcast. This is a show where a couple of friends get together and watch the Generation 1 Transformers cartoon in story order, then convene to talk about what they saw, looking at it from the perspective of how we engaged with it as children. We are lifetime fans of the show, never fell out of love with it. Now getting together for a careful watch along where we compare it with our adult perspectives and perspectives between the two of us. My name is Jersey Droz, and I'm a cartoonist and teaching artist. The other host is named... Only Hoover. <laughs> Believe it or not, I did not see that coming. <laughs> oh, you're more than just only Hoover to me, Hoove. So. Uh. <laughs> you're my friend. But yeah, you saw it when you downloaded this episode, everybody. We're talking about an episode called Only Human. We're not going to spoil what makes this one such a memorable episode, are we? Oh, don't worry. IMDb pretty much does. Oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, episode 88. Who wrote this one, Hoover? This is by Susan K. Williams. And this is not only her first Transformers episode, but she also wrote the G.I. Joe episode, The Spy Who Rooked Me. Hmm. And these are her only entries on her IMDb. So I did some research and sadly learned that she died in October 2020 at age 76. Writing was her love, and she would try to only work part-time to allow herself more time for writing. Hmm. She was actually in the PhD film program at University of Iowa before moving out to California and writing these two cartoon episodes. Wow. That's some interesting context to have as we go through this one two cartoon writing credits and it's just these two episodes interesting i strongly encourage people to watch this one even though the animation is like eh, it's fine mm -hmm. if you've never seen it it's worth seeing yes definitely it's not one that i would watch over and over and over and over no but i mean not again not to spoil anything but there was this is the one that's the famous episode where probably every cartoon fan of or Sunbow cartoon fan of the time stood up and went, no way yeah. at the end. And that's kind of like one of its biggest value propositions. Mm. <laughs> there's, there's, there's some really good stuff in here, but there's also like a lot of like, huh stuff and the animation, this is not Acom, right? But it, there are parts where it's like, Ooh, this feels Acom. -y. Yeah. It seems like this was one of the episodes where Acom was supposed to do it, but they were too busy or whatever, so they had someone else do it, and they weren't really too much better than Acom was. So, yeah, there's a lot of really clunky and rushed animation in this one. So, but but <laughs> with that hard sell, where can people go watch it? This is season three, episode twenty three on Tubi, or it's on the Hasbro Pulse YouTube channel. All right, so. We're about to dive in, everybody, and before we dive in, I have to do the cold IMDb logline read. Here we go. <clears throat> Criminals get help from a mysterious person called Snake. He has a device which transfers the personalities of Rodimus, Springer, and RC into human bodies. They miss somebody. <laughs> <laughs> what about poor Ultra Magnus? We make fun of the guy, but geez, he's in this episode. The criminals take the Transformers' bodies on a crime spree. The human Autobots must find a way to get their bodies back. Watch for a surprising twist for the masked person known as Snake. 
Ooh, I'm gonna watch for a surprise. <laughs> Surprising twist. Oh, I mean, again, we're gonna talk about it quite a bit at the end. It was a big surprise, but where do we begin? Well, as we begin, we see a big cityscape with traditional 1960s to 1980s style architecture. But behind the older buildings are big, huge, sci-fi looking buildings. Apparently, they thought that great strides would be made in architectural design in the 20-year gap between the two seasons. No one would rebuild the classic buildings, apparently, but brand new space-age buildings would go up right down the road. <laughs> and honestly, it makes some sense. I had an opportunity last week to drive by the Astrodome, which is a famous ballpark built in 1964, but not used since 2009. And it's still there. Wow. There's been numerous ideas pitched to use it for different things, but the city can never reach a consensus. It's deemed too historic to just bulldoze, but they also can't make a decision about what to do with it. And so, right next to it is NRG Stadium, which opened in 2002, a high-tech sports stadium with retractable roof. You can probably Google up pictures of the two in the same shot, as they are literally right next to each other. And the architecture could not be more different between the two buildings. So in a matter of seconds, I went from, boy, this cityscape looks ridiculous, to, oh yeah, cityscapes often look ridiculous in real life, too. Behold the rewards of no zoning laws. Yeah, that yes, that's specific to Texas, though, in the United States. Texas is a weird state in that you don't have zoning laws. You could have people who have like a house right next to an amusement park. That's true. <laughs> but yeah, that's a good, that's an interesting observation because that the first shot of Only Human is visually arresting. Is that you see what looks like a Manhattan skyline, and then behind it three to four times the size yeah. of the skyscrapers are these future skyscrapers, even with like winding tracks around the buildings, a la the attorney, playset, Right. Mm -hmm. And, and this is something that happens a lot in this episode. I'm only going to like mention a few more times of this idea that this one stands apart visually in that they're really kind of leaning into this whole, it's the future kind of image in a way that episodes like, the ultimate weapon didn't quite do right. Yeah. We saw a lot of earth in the ultimate weapon, but at no time were we really being reminded this is 2006, you know, or whatever year. So, but this one, there's a lot of it saying like, look, flying cars, big super future buildings. Everybody has quilting on their clothes. Cause in the future, we all wear quilting. Mm -hmm. We should also point out it's clearly set in New York city. New York city. Yeah. Yep. Future New York city. So we close in on one of these new towers, which explodes, and then the one next to it explodes, then another. People flee in the streets, and police hover cars fly above said streets, their sirens blazing. We then cut away to the docks, where a rough-looking guy yells at a trio of toughs. You know what we're looking for? Find it! This guy is named Dutch, and Neil Ross, a.k.a. Springer, is doing his voice. The men begin pulling down wooden crates in search of something. Meanwhile, still utter chaos in the city. Police and firefighters are everywhere. As one human falls from a building, he's saved by Springer, who's flying by in helicopter mode. Now, this is not animated well. They say this one isn't actually ACOM, but somewhere else that ACOM farmed out to. 
But in any case, it's still not a very pretty episode, and a lot of the acomisms hold true. Mm-hmm. This particular scene is not animated well because it looks very much like this human just falls into Springer's <laughs> helicopter blades. It literally does. <laughs> which are, of course, spinning at full speed, him being a helicopter in flight. <laughs> but we're just going to assume he's not dead because Springer says to him, You locked out, chum. The Autobots are in town. Thankfully, in the next shot, we see Springer has his arms extended out, and he seems to tuck the man into his cockpit. He tries to answer more cries for help and rescue more people, but as he swoops in, another explosion in the building knocks him off course, and he's knocked to the ground. R.C. rushes up to see if he's alright, but he quickly goes right back to attempting to save the humans. And on the second time, he manages to save the family from a burning building. We cut back to the docks, where the men have found what they seek. It looks like a large canister labeled Danger Neutronium. We hear Springer say there's looters down at the docks, and soon enough, Rodimus Prime and Ultra Magnus pull up to the would-be thieves and transform. And surprisingly, Rodimus actually leaves his trailer behind him as mm-hmm. he turns into a robot, something I'm not sure we've ever seen happen in the show. And if you look carefully... Magnus does too, which makes zero sense. (laughs) As the humans flee, they shoot at the Autobots, prompting Rodimus to say, As the thieves tremble at the sight of the Autobots, Rodimus yells that they only want the object in his hands, the Neutronium. Rodimus plucks it from the tough's hands and lifts it to his face, commenting, Anyway, it's not a new tie, right? Anyway, it's not a new tie, right? Okay, moving on. Yeah. (laughs) Magnus sees that the device says danger on it and shouts a warning, but it's too late. Dutch, the boss of the Tufts, has stepped out of the alley and shot at the canister, causing it to explode in Rodimus' face. The blast knocks Rodimus into Magnus and both of them into the sea. This allows the thugs time to pile in their flying car and escape. Dutch warns them that they may still be goners after Mr. Draft hears about this. Rodimus wonders when he'll ever learn as he and Magnus climb up on the docks. I just want to direct everybody's attention to the screen during this whole battle scene because the thugs run away in their getaway car and it's totally like... Mm, what would you call these car designs? They're just like little flying shuttles. Yeah, they're really more shuttle than car. Yeah. And I, again, I just, I even though what it looks like we walked into like an episode of the A-Team starring the Transformers, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's still kind of neat to see like this. Oh, it, it's just reminding me that we really haven't, outside of Five Faces of Darkness, we really haven't had an episode that really centers on the fact that it's the future on Earth. And we're getting that here. It doesn't look awesome. But it's still, I, I remember that feeling very vivid as a child and as an adult. I'm, I'm really reconnecting with it. And the way the noises all the cars make, too, are yeah. all future car noises. It's, it's kind of interesting. I don't know why they only chose this episode to really lean into that, but here we are. We then cut away to a TV reporter played by Wally Burr interviewing a police chief who's voiced by Buster Jones, asking if these explosions in the city were just a diversion to cover up the attempted theft of the neutronium. We pull back to see this scene on a television, 
as the police chief thanks the Autobots for their assistance in the city. Fun fact about this police chief, he somewhat resembles Bulletproof from the Cops cartoon. But I think that's just a coincidence as we're still a couple years away from that show, although designs probably would have been done by then. Hmm. The television is in a big room with all the toughs sitting around a table. The man at the head of the table, who has dark hair and a Tom Selleck mustache, turns to face the hoodlums and says, You are aware, I presume, that my client will not be pleased about the loss of his neutronium. But, uh, Mr. Drath, we... We will deal with the Autobots as we would any other impediment to business. You're gonna ice them robots? So at the table is Victor Drath, played by Philip L. Clark, who is dead end. Also there are Dutch and the thugs from earlier. And next to them is a blonde woman in a pink dress who has yet to say a thing. But no time for her now as we change scenes. We see a round building on top of a hill, and then a long limo-like car drives down a road away from the building to a gate with armed guards, which opens as the car approaches. It continues onto the streets, eventually stopping at a wooded area where Draft and Dutch exit out the back door. Yeah, and the door opens like the DeLorean door. I, I dig this future limo, actually. It kind of looks like a bullet train, in a way, mm -hmm. but with like Back to the Future doors. It, it it vaguely looks Florodarish, but not with with like remove like forty percent of his panache, <laughs> and then you've got this 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 car. But yeah, I, I I remember this episode as a child, like really noticing all the future cars in it. We don't see a regular car anymore in this episode, and, and this goes back to like the little complaint that I had about when I was twelve. I thought I was going to be driving Blur as an adult, and I'm still <laughs> angry about that. And this doesn't look that bad either, because like doors opening in a funny way that always equals you know fancy. Like in that Silicon Valley show, I want a car that has doors that open like this, not like this. They approach a couple of men next to a wooden building who ask, "Hey, hey you looking for old Snake? First, tell me where he is." Next block, uh, pacing up and down. Pay the man, Dutch. Dutch steps forward and knocks the man out with a left cross. We then see a trench-coated man sitting on a curb on the street. He's approached by Drath, who greets him. Snake, we have to talk. I have another project for you. Snake stands up to meet Drath. He has a big floppy hat, a big gray jacket with red lining around the neck, and he seems to have a chrome mask on. Jersey, can you give us a more thorough description of this man? Certainly. Yeah, the floppy hat kind of looks like a wide-brimmed fedora, like a fedora and a sun hat mixed together. And interestingly, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm only, only pointing at this just because it's, it's unique, is like the band on the the top of the fedora has a buckle on it, which is like, why did you put a buckle on that? That's interesting. But it, it gives a sense of feeling shabby. The hat and the outfit look baggy and shabby. Although I wouldn't say he doesn't look like he's torn or anything. And he's got a scarf. Underneath the scarf, you can see some blue clothing. At his knees, he's got black boots that go up to about his knees. But between the bottom of his trench coat and his knees, you see this light blue material on his for his pants. And the face. Let's talk about that face. It is a chrome 
featureless mask and there are reflections that run across the side in in particular is a circle reflection that rests around where the right eye of the character would be so and then otherwise actually you know you know what it gives me a vibe of is like 90s jim lee x-men character designs <laughs> it looks like he's wearing gambit's jacket but it, it the the impression i get and and i had this impression as a kid is this is like some kind of unhoused person in 2006 but why he's wearing a silver mask i don't know something worthy of my services mr giraffe or another of your vendettas. You spoke once of a technology your organization had developed. Synthoids, I believe. You could transfer minds from their original living forms to synthetic bodies. Oh, yes. Easily. Does that technology still exist, Snake? Is it for sale? This is the world, Mr. Draft. Everything is for sale. Synthoids? Well, that's a name we G.I. Joe fans have heard before. Not to mention, this is very much a voice that we've heard before. Even if you're not a G.I. Joe fan, you probably recognize that this is Chris Lotta, voice of Starscream. But let's put a pin in all that. The three men all get into Giraffe's car and drive off. It's also worth noting when we, if you hit the back 10 on your podcatcher and listen to this, this clip, both characters are really like emphasizing the S sounds like they have like a very sibilant conversation <laughs> between the two of them. You know, does that technology still exist snake? And I'm like, I wonder how intentional that was, or if it was just, that's just the way they read it. But either way, also, I don't know about you, but it's been a while since I revisited the synthoids episodes of GI Joe, but I have no memory of them transferring minds into synthoids. I just remember synthoids were like these weird putty people that they made for the no place like Springfield two-parter, but yeah, they didn't really need to like transfer minds into it. I don't know if that was an evolution of the process in 20 years. Yeah, it, it, like I said, it's been ages since I've watched all of G.I. Joe, so I don't know everything they did with Synthoids. I don't trust my memory on that. But as, as I thought about it, I was like, did they do that? I don't know. But, you know, this is 2006. Synthoid technology could have come a long way. And also, this is a different show. Synthoids might mean something different in Transformers. I don't know. Well, we then see some shipping trucks drive up to Giraffe's place and start setting up equipment. There's giant tubes and computer consoles. Old Snake approaches a console and presses a button and some lights flash. Giraffe turns to him and says, It's missing only one thing. Yes, victims. We cut away to Autobot headquarters where the Autobots discuss a lead in the case with the police chief. It seems the name Victor Giraffe has come up. The chief thinks that the lead may be a trap to lure in the Autobots. And if it's a trap, Springer? Uh, Chief, no offense. I mean, maybe this Victor Drath is tough, but he's still only human. So we change scenes, and the Autobots arrive at Drath's estate to do some digging. Present are Rodimus, Magnus, Arcee, and Springer. The gates open up as they approach, and it seems the Autobots are being lured inside. Once they get inside a building, an alarm is tripped, and laser beams surround our heroes. Rodimus leads them to an adjacent room where the four run headlong into a trap. 
Claws descend from the ceiling, trapping the Autobots in place, shocking them with electricity. Giraffe addresses the floor. I take it you received my invitation. This is Michelle. She's come to watch you die. Let's not keep her waiting. Giraffe's blonde girlfriend from an earlier scene walks up to him and looks away from the Autobots, looking almost ashamed. This is an important thing to note about this episode is there is a lot of direction of in the sense of characters non-verbally communicating things. So we have this Michelle character. She doesn't say anything yet. And then she looks up at them being electrocuted and then she like looks away like, yeah, like either she's ashamed or she can't stand to see them suffer. But there's a lot of nodding and a lot of, mm-hmm. yeah, just like non-verbal stuff that the animation isn't up to the task of doing. Which make I think that contributes to this one feeling really awkward. But this at least works with her doing the thing where okay, we're getting our first clue that she is somehow connected with this guy. If we've watched our A team and our heart to heart, we know that she's like the trophy girlfriend of this rich thug, and she's not a hundred percent sold into his lifestyle of criminal debauchery and murder. Right? Yeah, you could definitely take that assumption. Yep. <laughs> I know where you're going with that, Hoover. <laughs> you can certainly deduce that. Let's see where they go with it. <laughs> Let's see, indeed. <laughs> Elsewhere in the room, Old Snake flips a switch and devices descend down over the Autobots' heads. Bid farewell to those big, strong bodies, Autobots! The equipment comes to life and pulses with energy as energy seems to be drained from the four captive Autobots. The energy flows from each Autobot through a separate tube down into four human-sized tubes across the room. As Drath gleefully watches the process, Michelle walks away either disinterested or possibly not approving of this strange revenge. As Snake flips more switches, the four human-sized tubes begin to fill with smoke or something that vaguely recalls human form. Giraffe seems unimpressed, telling his flunkies to get rid of it and to melt the Autobots down for scrap. But Snake convinces him that the Autobots are four of the most powerful weapons on Earth and should be kept. The tubes, however, containing what seems to be a failed experiment, are emptied like trash as Giraffe orders their contents destroyed and so they are hauled off to the dump, where their contents are about to be compacted like so much trash, when suddenly a human hand reaches out from the container of garbage, and we find ourselves at a commercial break. Mm. That, that, that is such a, like a classic motif of the hand coming out of something, right? Like, if you're going to climb out of anything, if you're going to do it in a cinematic way, always make sure your hand is the first thing people see, right? <laughs> But it's it's pretty classic. But I also want to, before we dive in to spend our parents' money on things, because we can only, the TV can only hold our attention for a few minutes before we got to buy something. I want to talk about the designs of these thugs, like all of the heavies who work for Victor Draft. And like the guy who's working the trash crushing machine. Don't these guys look like they're like rejects out of some canon film, like some post-apocalyptic, like like mm-hmm. Rotor or something like that. Some really cheesy 1987 post-apocalyptic future film. He's got like this David Carradine hair. Is it David Carradine? Am I getting my Carradines mixed up? Which <laughs> one is the Legend of Kung Fu? Is that David Carradine? Yeah, I think so. 
Yeah, he's got like the David Carradine hair. He's got like like Roy Orbison sunglasses on in the middle of night. And then, yeah, he's got like this like leather jacket that's like separated by these bits of purple quilting all over it. Everyone in this episode wears heavy jackets. I know it's probably <laughs> winter in New York, but we don't see any snow or anything. No. I, yes, that's, that was my first thought watching this. I was like, isn't everybody hot? Everybody looks like they're really, really warm. Victor Drath is sitting in his house. He's got like a big padded coat. He's got another big padded coat just over his shoulders like Lando Calrissian. Man, just like so many layers in the future. Okay. That observed. Let us go and buy things at the store because how else will we you know, regulate our feelings over. We're not going to like actually talk about it and maybe go to a therapist or something. No, no we're going to go gonna buy things. Spend the pain away. <laughs> That's right. Yay. Now these strange computer consoles and tubes that old snake brings in didn't seem to create much. They put whatever they made right into the trash, but I want to create some stuff that I'll want to keep forever or at least for a few minutes. And I can do that with the Play-Doh fun factory. Let's have a Play-Doh party! Yeah! Huh? A shooting star! You can have a Play-Doh party anytime with the Play-Doh Fun Factory. I mean spaghetti! Fire! Make a hose! No, it's a snake! I want your spaghetti! You got the spaghetti! By yourself or with the gang, you can have a Play-Doh party. It's fun! The Play-Doh Fun Factory toy comes with everything you see here. From Kenner. I want your spaghetti. <laughs> it cannot be overstated how often this commercial played we are children because yes, the I want your spaghetti is so ingrained mm -hmm. in my head that when my wife and I eat pasta, that sentence is going to be uttered at some point <laughs> or another. <laughs> I had completely forgotten about this commercial until I played it and then we got to that part and I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> The snake wants your spaghetti. I want your spaghetti. And it's blue spaghetti on top of it. That's poison spaghetti, snake. It's it's all rotten. It's got mold on it. Don't eat it, snake. But yes, I also like that, you know, you keep it with the theme of the episode. You know, it's old snake is eating your spaghetti. Oh, man, that's another T-shirt right there. <laughs> so I did not remember the Play-Doh Fun Factory being so small. Like, it's yeah. just like basically like it's like the size of a stapler. And then it's like got like the little stencils where you can make like, you know, a snake or some spaghetti or other like a crescent shape. I remember liking this toy a lot. So you've you've piqued my nostalgia. I will take it. And I'll keep the creating going with the mad scientist flex factory. This isn't necessarily too gross. It's merely too weird. <laughs> I've invented the Flex Factory, where things get big and small. But that's not all. Mad scientists! Flex formula is what you use to make the weird creations you choose. You can pump them up big. And watch them expand. Then shrink them down. Just use your hands. My Flex Factory is wacky and wild and too weird. The Flex Factory comes with everything you see here. Air and imagination not included. Man, talk about a one-note toy. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know who came up. I mean, somebody must have come up with the te technology of the putty that can stretch really big, right? That's got to be it. That was the inspiration for this. Because, like, for those who aren't going to go watch the commercial, and you should, it's a balloon that you put putty on, and you pump it up, 
And the, the face that you put on the putty stretches out, and then you let the air out, and then it gets all wrinkly like a shrunken head, right? Too weird. <laughs> yeah, it's a little too weird. But you know what? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm a creative person. I can find other uses for this thing, so I will take the flex factory. <laughs> well, after all that creating, I want to create some refreshment for myself, and I can do that. With the Snoopy Snow Cone Maker. It's yum yum fun that is cool and key. And its name is the Snoopy Snow Cone Machine. You put ice cubes in and get a snow cone out. This is fun. Yum yum fun is what it's all about. Some assembly required and you mix the punch flavor. It's yummy Snoopy. It's yum yum fun that is cool and key. Snow Cone Machine comes with everything you see here from Hasbro. Because Yum Yum Fun is what it's all about, Hoover. Yay. This is another one that like, yes, if you, you could have asked me before I even watch this commercial again to sing the song and I could sing the song. This is one of those ones that just buries itself in your brain forever and ever. Come find me at the cartoonist old folks home when I'm 94 years old and say, is there something cool in Keene, Jersey? I'll start singing the song. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, did you have this? I always wanted it. Mm. My parents did not allow me to buy it, probably knowing that it was going to be a piece of garbage. <laughs> and then many years later, many years later, in 1997, my mother bought me a more elaborate shaved ice machine. Mm -hmm. And boy... That was work. You yeah. really had to work for those treats. <laughs> yes, you did. And the hand I was gonna say, like, yeah, I was just gonna say, like that. It, it almost seems like this would be like a really good toy to pitch to parents now, because like it's gonna make your kids fit. Like, you want that yeah. sugar? <laughs> You're gonna work for that sugar. <laughs> I got so swole in 1997. <laughs> just your right arm, though. You look like X-Bron from R.I.D. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know, but I could swear that's Bill Ratner doing the VO in this one. It really does sound like him. Yeah. I would not be surprised. But, so that's another reason to get it. So, ding, ding, ding. Ring your bells, everybody. Jersey bought all three with Mom and Dad's money. Whew. I feel good. I'm ready to watch <laughs> the rest of this episode and see if Old Snake is who I think he is. Well, as we return, the garbage container is about to be flattened. But we find there are four human beings inside who jump out at the nick of time, seconds before their trash is crushed. The four are all clothed in white shirts and pants. There are three men and one woman. One of the men has red-brown hair, another has dark-brown hair, and the third has brown hair with gray temples. The woman has blonde hair. The four dash into a building at the junkyard, which conveniently has clothes for them all to put on, and a mirror to look into. And after they all put on jumpsuits, we learn that these four humans are in fact the four Autobots given human bodies. Oh no. All of us? Rodimus? Springer? Ultra Magnus? What's happened to us? We were just wondering about that ourselves. And not only was it super convenient to find jumpsuits to wear, but amazingly, these jumpsuits are conveniently the same colors <laughs> as the Autobots were. We have Rodimus in orange and red, RC in pink and white, Springer in green and yellow, 
and Magnus in red, white, and blue. So the viewer will have no issues telling who's who. Lucky us. Yeah, this is one of the sillier things. Actually, you know, I think the bigger offender than the color coordination is the fact they're all wearing bib overalls. That's the biggest problem. But, you know, this is one of those things where it's like, yes, when I was in my 20s, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> but now I look at that and I, I read this and, I, and it's probably been a while since I've used this rationale for explaining something away in Transformers. But I think there's an element of poetry in children's storytelling that I'm I show up ready for. And I know it's not for everybody, but like what I mean by poetry is poetry is non literal language to describe how something feels or just to describe something a little bit more abstract in a very direct way. Right. If I say, Oh, whoever you are, Rose, you are a swan. And if you say, make up your mind, Rose or swan, what's it going to be? You didn't get the point of what I was saying. Right. So I feel like this is the, the clothes in the context of the story are not literally red and orange. It's more like a poetic touch so that we, the viewer, as you just pointed out, can keep track of who's who. Because how the heck are we, especially in this episode with this kind of wonky animation, how are we going to tell Rodimus from Springer in human form, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like a visual shorthand introduced. I Again, I know it's not for everybody, but this is something, I mean, this is the same thing as like in Scooby-Doo, Shaggy's always wearing the same costume. Fred's always wearing the same costume, right? And yeah, it's silly. It's absurd. But that's not the point. It's not about trying to represent something that's realistic. We're also talking about a television show where giant robots got turned into people (laughs) through glass tubes and a weird silver-faced man who pulls a lever and does it. You know, it's already this is beyond, what would I say? My suspension of disbelief has already been broken, right? (laughs) Well, the four hear someone else enter the building and they find cover. Magnus deduces that their survival was not intended and Drath's men must be after them now. They decide to split into pairs with Rodimus and Springer going after Drath and Magnus and Narcy trying to get to Autobot City. Drath's flunky reports back that the trash was alive and escaped. Snake nonchalantly states that stranger things have happened. (laughs) And Draft puts his security on full alert. Human Springer and Rodimus have hitched a ride in the back of the truck and sneak out, looking to get to the bottom of all this. But the pair are spotted by Draft's men, so Rodimus decides to lure them away, allowing Springer to rendezvous with R.C. and Ultra Magnus. Inside Draft's estate, we see the four robot forms of the Autobots walking around, controlled by men inside them, as Draft and Snake look on. The controls aren't the greatest, but Snake says their power will make up for their lack of grace. We catch up to human Rodimus on the run from Giraffe's men. A shot from a laser pistol grazes him as he attempts to get into the estate. Michelle appears at the door, saying, We don't often get prowlers around here, let alone good-looking ones. Michelle is voiced by Sue Blue, whom we all know as R.C., she has Rodimus enter as she stands outside. Giraffe's thugs come running by asking if she's seen anyone, and she shakes her head negatively. Once the thugs are gone, she enters to find human Rodimus collapsed on the floor. Circuits shorted. The Matrix need Matrix. Oh. Rodimus passes out as she kneels down next to him. We catch up with Human Springer walking down the street, who's accosted by someone trying to sell a pamphlet concerning the path to true humanity. But Springer retorts, 
Sorry, pal, I'm a robot at heart. <laughs> I always thought this scene was funny as a kid because it kind of also like sort of summons that image of, and I forget if it was Airplane 1 or 2 where Robert Stack is like punching people at the airport. <laughs> like all the people who are like, you know, the Hare Krishnas and the, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses and they, they're, all they're trying to do is sell him peace and he's just like brutalizing them. <laughs> it, so I, I recognize that in this moment. But as I watch it now as an adult, First of all, it's like, hey, come on, Springer, you're a good guy. Don't don't hit some poor guy just because he's trying to sell you something. Street. Just say no. He's free to ask. You're free to say no. You don't have to hit him but or shove him as he does. But why does the guy with the path to true humanity have like a wizard costume on? Well, that's what future cults are going to be like. <laughs> I'm going to future church, everybody. Where's my wizard robes? <laughs> As Springer stops to look at his reflection in a storefront window, he's shocked to see R.C. and Ultra Magnus, in a robot form, walking down the street behind him. They transform and drive off, with human Springer giving chase. He's then shocked to see Rodimus and his own Transformer self in front of him, driven by Drath's goons. The goons exit the Transformers and decide to use the Autobot's strength to break into a jewelry store. Piloting the Transformer bodies like Mecha, they transform to robot mode and shoot their way inside the store, and then exit the robots via rope ladders, running into the jewelry store for a stealing spree. After pocketing the jewels, the thugs get back inside the Transformers, but it seems that Springer's two pilots are having issues getting Springer to transform. Human Springer takes advantage of this problem, yelling up to his body's pilots. Need a hand? I uh, operate heavy equipment. Uh, yeah, but there's only room for two in here. Yeah, you're right. One of the thugs literally kicks the other out of Robot Springer's chest, knocking him to the ground below, inviting Human Springer to join him inside the robot. The Robot Springer is transformed to car mode, and the pair of Autobot vehicles drive off into the night. So this moment is the first part of the episode where it really starts to feel like we're getting a Cliff's Notes version of what the story originally intended because this is so abrupt, right? Mm-hmm. You have trouble there? I work heavy equipment. Oh, but there's only room for two of us to do it. Yeah, you're right. And he throws them out. Well, we work together, right? Like if I'm having trouble at my job and like some stranger comes up and is like, I can kind of help you with that. I'm not going to like throw my coworker out of a window. <laughs> I do it it's all like, the Come time. Come on. <laughs> I defenestrated three people this morning. <laughs> but this feels like I see what they're going for here. Like Springer's infiltrating the gang. Sure. But this feels like even as a kid, I remember feeling like this just felt like it happened really fast. And a lot more starts to happen in this episode that feels like that. Well, we cut away to human Magnus and RC as Magnus is trying to contact the chief of police via a payphone but he was left on hold until his three minutes were up. The pair walk past a warehouse that reads Drath's Imports, and the pair decide to sneak in for more clues about what this Victor Drath is up to. After unknowingly tripping a sensor, the pair open crate after crate, finding all matter of -of top-of-the-line weapons. So it seems Drath is in the arms business. But before the pair can do anything about it, a huge clang is heard at the garage door, it seems a robot is punching its way in. 
and that robot is the body of Ultra Magnus, accompanied by R.C.'s robot body. They punch the garage door down and enter the warehouse, approaching the two helpless humans as we head to the second commercial break. This moment did affect me as a kid when R.C. says, Ultra Magnus, it's us and it's not animated great i mean look at rc's face there hoover <laughs> she looks kind of scary i guess that's the point it's supposed to be scary but yeah the the idea that they're about to be killed by their own bodies that way from the outside like that i that i thought was for a 12 year old 13 year old role i was at the time from my perspective that felt like this is drama so so i'm a bottle of seven up and you just shook me so now we got to go buy more things right of course that solves all problems. So draftsmen are using the Autobots as if they were Mecha, and I know if I could be a Mecha pilot, I would choose Mecha from Robotech to the rescue. The Byroids are coming, so you'd better take care. An invasion of hovercraft soon will be there. Robotech to the rescue. But Dana's got her hover tank. Let's She's there with all her might. Switch to Battleoid, and you'll both win the fight. Give up. Surrounded by Byroids. Do it! Stop shooting! Hover tank, to the rescue! Hover tank, hovercraft, and action figures sold separately, new from Matchbox. The Bioroids are finished! The Bioroids have just begun to fight. <laughs> Let's put Hoover in a hover tank. Yeah, the Dana Sterling hover tank, which we both had. This was, I did not remember this commercial at all. I don't remember. It's like when they did the Robotech to the rescue part, it's actually Dana's hover tank that comes mm -hmm. into the shot instead of like Rick Hunter and Roy Foker. They're not selling me on the excitement and adventure of Robotech by doing it in verse, right? Just show the cool tank. Don't have a guy <laughs> rhyming at me like Dr. Seuss. <laughs> Come on. Bioroids look amazing as they are. You don't need to rhyme to make me pay attention. <laughs> So I got to say, it's pretty impressive for its time because the boys are playing with a girl action figure yeah. as the hero. And how often did that happen back in commercials? Somebody must have written something, if not a book, about how Robotech really did give permission to us boys in the 80s. Because like back then, and this is not to say that we were actively complicit in this whole girls versus boy thing. This is how things were marketed to us. And these gender roles were really strongly asserted by the adults in our lives. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I've already told the story on this podcast, but like in first grade, I went to school with my strawberry shortcake and it caused trouble amongst the other kids. Like you don't get to like strawberry shortcake. And I'm like, what do you mean? So having characters like Dana Sterling and Lisa Hayes show up in this cartoon when we were like 11, 12, that was, that was meaningful. And I don't think that I was doing the whole, like, what? But she's a girl. Girls can't do things. But it was it, it was a way of giving permission for me to think that, no, of course women are awesome, right? So, yeah, I'm with you. you there is something kind of awesome about that second series, or Tech Masters, make your main character this amazing, bubbly, brave, vulnerable woman, Dana Sterling. And she drives around in a hover tank. Come what? on. So, yeah, now it's just getting me to want to watch that again. <laughs> and I'll get another hover tank because they look amazing. Or if I was able to get something a little more expensive, I might go with robotics, which mm -hmm. I can move around with buttons and electronics. <laughs> Plug in these Ethernet cables and you can make a robot move its head up and down. That's fun. <laughs> 
Who puts the future in your hands? Robotics! Who gives you robots to command? Robotics! Who lets you build fighting creatures wilder than a movie feature? Robotics. You create them, you control them. Who puts the future in your hands? Robotics! Who gives you robots to command? Robotics! R2000 comes with what you see here. Batteries not included. R1000 sold separately from Milton Bradley. I never had any robotics, but I love that song. That song is so of its time. <laughs> and who puts the future in your hands? Who gives your robots to command? It's got like the little kid chroma keyed on top of the dinosaur's head. I don't have a clue how these things work, but hey, you know what? There's a cartoon out there that you can watch. It's on YouTube where you can watch mm-hmm. like a pilot for the robotics series. It's not bad. And so many Sunbow voice actors are there. Yeah. Yeah. It's not bad. So it might make you actually want robotics. So I'll tell you what, I will get the, this one set with all those yellow cables. That's weird, but you know, I got to have the toy when I watch it on the TV. Otherwise it's not like I'm, I don't love the TV show enough unless I have the toy in my lap while I'm watching it on the TV. Right. <laughs> so, yep. I got myself a hover tank and a robotics. Come on. You can't do all six. Hoove. Mm. Well, if I can invite a few of my friends over, we can all get our own vehicles and then we get Vehicle Voltron. Not that lame Lion Force one. I'm talking Land Team, Sea Team, and Air Team Vehicle Voltron. <laughs> From days of long ago comes a legend. The legend of Voltron, defender of the universe. can form Voltron. Attack teams also sold separately from Matchbox. Uh, we must have talked about this one before. This was actually my first Voltron. I, I, I discovered the lions after the vehicles. Mm. And so I was confused in the other way where I'm like, what? No, it's not. It's not five lions. It's like 55 vehicles. That become <laughs> a, a big it guy. does seem like 55. I mean, they kind of <laughs> cheat because they can like, lump three of them together and then it yeah. just seems like one vehicle but it's really feels like like 22 vehicles that have to come <laughs> together to form voltron and some of the vehicles in air quotes are like okay is that really a vehicle that's more like <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that's a quadrilateral that's just like painted blue with some computery bits on it <laughs> but yeah i i i discovered vehicle voltron first i saw some special like some like four episodes smushed together into like one film kind of thing and then found out about lion force voltron later i know the story now everybody you don't need to email us unless you want to tell us how much you're enjoying the podcast <laughs> i so that's all to say that i have a lot of fondness for vehicle voltron and so i will take it and you can come over and you can be land team i'll be c team yay <laughs> all six I also had Vehicle Voltron as a kid. Well, let me let me say I had a Japanese import of a tiny vehicle Voltron that wasn't what? labeled Voltron. It had like its original name, which I can't remember. So that was the only actual toy of a Voltron I ever had. How did you come by a Japanese import of Vehicle Voltron? Is that a flea market? No way. Yeah. Oh, wow. Man, you know... 
at some point or another, we got to do like some kind of retrospective on, on flea markets and like how powerful <laughs> those events were for us discovering weird toys with no explanation. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Oh, I, I had so many Robotech knockoffs when I was a little kid because of things <laughs> like that. And I had no idea what they were. It was before I even discovered Robotech. I was like, oh, it's like a plane that turns into a robot. I guess it's a transformer, but it feels really flimsy and cheap. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, wow, that's cool. So, okay. So we both have vehicle Voltron, and now you can have the real Matchbox vehicle Voltron. It's die-cast metal hoover. This is a weapons-grade toy. You could hurt yourself <laughs> with it. Excellent. <laughs> All right, another six for six episode. I know. As we return, the two Autobot bodies are entering the warehouse, coming after their former inhabitants. Human Magnus tells RC to get to Autobot City while he uses weapons from the crates to hold off their former bodies. RC protests, but Magnus snaps at her to leave. The thugs piloting the Autobodies back off while Human Magnus threatens them with plasma grenades. Meanwhile, R.C. is able to sneak out the back, stealing a motorcycle from one of Giraffe's men and zooming off into the night. Magnus has the two piloted Autobot bodies backing up, not wanting to test whether they could survive the blast of a plasma grenade. But Dutch, on the warehouse roof, out of sight, takes aim at human Magnus with a laser pistol. But no time to follow up on that as we cut away to Giraffe's girl Michelle making coffee. It's now the next morning. Human Rodimus lies on her couch as she brings a steaming cup to him. What's this? It's called breakfast, dummy. Mmm, smells better than it tastes. We've met before, haven't we? I recognize the look in your eyes. You're the Autobot leader. Now, I'm not sure how she could recognize an Autobot given human form, but okay, sure. <laughs> right. This just serves to remind Rodimus of his mission, and he asks if she can get him into Drath's house. Michelle retorts that she'll help him however she can. So, we don't know anything about this woman. She seems to be Drath's lover or business associate or something, but her actions just prove a tremendous lack of loyalty to him. We have to piece it together ourselves. There's not even a line or two that indicates what her deal is. Yeah, and this is all implication. So his his arm is bandaged up. We see that. And he's laying down on the couch. He's, you know, still in his red jumpsuit. But even as a kid who, you know, was watching shows like Heart to Heart as a child, I felt like there was an implication that something romantical happened last night when she says it's breakfast dummy, you know. Mm -hmm. I I'm not trying to suggest that anything of an adult nature occurred the night before, but I feel like the story is trying to imply that or at least play into our assumptions and expectations about this kind of scene from other kinds of shows like this, mm -hmm. right? Cause this really does feel like a Magnum PI episode or an A team episode or any of those shows where you're dealing with some kind of like illicit arms dealer and some kind of plot and conspiracy and the heroes who are underpowered are trying to work their way into the center of the organization to take it out kind of thing. Charles Bronson movies, commando, etc. Right. And this scene feels like something you find in all those, but you are correct. We know zero about this woman, but the per the performance by Sue Blue here is like, I'll help you any way I can. And she already said he's like super good looking, right? So like, there's like, okay, so she's amorously attracted to him. There's another line in the episode where they kind of point in that direction. 
And it was really weird how readily I received that as a child, but as an adult, I'm like, that makes no sense. How did I arrive at that conclusion? But I see why the writer wanted me to arrive at that conclusion. Anyway, moving on. But yeah, we got this weird woman saying, I'm going to help you. Well, we then cut away to Autobot City, where a human RC pulls up on her motorcycle. Two Earth Defense Command soldiers greet her as she says she has to see Cup at once. They lead her into a screening room to get some information, but they don't like what they hear. I'm the Autobot, RC. Victor Draft used some strange machine to steal my body. And Rodimus, Springer, and Ultra Magnus. You don't believe me. So I was pleased to look at the screen in this moment because, you know, one thing that Sunbow cartoons can sometimes suffer from is same face syndrome, where a lot mm -hmm. of characters look like a lot of other characters. You look at the, the officer sitting at the desk taking the notes and it's like, oh, you know, he looks like a, a distinct human being. I mean, it's only like two seconds of him just like looking shocked and then looking at his partner like, do you believe this? But it's nice to see that like different looking people exist in Sunbow cartoons sometimes. <laughs> Well, then suddenly Cup drives by the office, and R.C. tries to flag him down, but fails. The two EDC soldiers lead her off somewhere and let her know a nice doctor will see her later. Clearly, they think she's a definite loon. Back at the draft estate, Michelle leads Rodimus into Victor's study, where thugs await them. They grab Rodimus as draft and Snake are revealed to have been waiting all along. Michelle smiles... Clearly, her disloyalty to Draft was just a ruse. I guess. <laughs> we don't know. It Again, this is where it feels very Cliff's notes. It, it feels like, okay, Rodimus and this gal were supposed to have more going on than what we saw. Because this, this betrayal doesn't feel like much of a betrayal when you watch it. But as a kid, I did feel it. I did feel like, oh, yeah, this is like the part of the story where like, you know, the, the seductress turns on the hero after you think that she's actually a good guy. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's funny how much shorthand the writer's using here and how it worked, except when you like push at it too hard. Draft <laughs> <laughs> explains that he can't have the former Autobots killed as it might incite the wrath of the Autobots to get revenge. Draft shows Rodimus images on a screen, including human Magnus tied up and taken prisoner by his men. So first, he has to destroy the other Autobots by blowing up Metroplex so they aren't around to get revenge. Then he can safely murder these four. It's a bit convoluted, but okay. <laughs> I guess there's like an element of he's trying to torture Rodimus too. He's like, you're going to watch your city be destroyed before you die kind of thing. I guess. But yes, you're right. This is like classic supervillain sloppiness, right? Mm -hmm. We cut away to the four auto bodies pulling up to the docks. Human Springer tries to get some info out of the thug that he's riding with, but all he knows is that they have a pickup and a delivery to make. The guy they're meeting at the docks is alarmed seeing someone he doesn't know, Human Springer, behind the wheel, but the thug vouches for him. They get instructions from this guy to deliver crates to Autobot City and set detonators on them and scram. They also bring out their prisoner, Human Ultra Magnus, and instruct them to tie him to one of the crates. And now Springer decides it's time to act. He punches out the thug sitting next to him and knocks him out of the vehicle, which is Robot Springer. 
He yells for the human ultra Magnus to get in, and even tied up, Magnus is able to get in the cockpit. The blades start up, and off they fly to Autobot City. The thugs transform Rodimus Prime and have him fire on the escaping Springer, and successfully shoot the backside of the helicopter. Yeah, so this sounds very exciting, but it's not animated all that great. <laughs> and it, this is where we get like another like Akami bit where... You could clearly see when Springer's talking to the thug, it's daytime. And then Ultra Magnus gets into the helicopter and they start flying away and it's nighttime. <laughs> it's one of those classic ACOM switcheroos where it's like, decide what your background is going to be, people. Springer appears to crash himself and Drath watching on a screen. We all love those screens that show people anything <laughs> they want. <laughs> tells his men to send the remaining three Autobots to Autobot City at once to complete the mission. Human Rodimus, still held captive in the study, overpowers the two holding him and leaps towards Drath. He's just about to punch Drath into next week, but Drath shows him the screen showing that the three Autobodies are headed towards Autobot City with bombs. We cut away to Autobot City where Blaster happily declares that Magnus, Rodimus, and R.C. have been spotted coming home. Human R.C. being held captive in an impromptu cell yells for anyone who will listen. And sadly, that's no one. We cut away to Springer and Magnus who are fixing up the tail portion of Springer's helicopter mode. Will it work? I don't know. I never tried to repair myself before. We cut away to the three Autobodies approaching Autobot City, and they're suddenly joined by Springer. They're determining how to stop the attack. And through some very dicey logic, they decide to attack Metroplex first, forcing him to defense mode rather than have the Autobots just blindly let them all in. Yeah, so this bit, this is all very truncated and it feels very fast forwarded. Like that scene where he says, will it work? I don't know. I've never tried to repair myself before. That's literally the whole scene. Mm -hmm. We just like it cuts to them trying to fix Springer. This episode does a lot of things that are fun to think about. What would happen if Autobots got turned into humans? That's mm -hmm. already that's like a pretty fun thought experiment. Well, you'd have to have situations where they'd have to like try to make a phone call and they don't have money because they're transformers. Transformers don't work with money, they work with Energon. All right, well, what if one of them gets damaged? You have to fix yourself from the outside. That's an interesting sort of thought experiment. What if you tried to tell some of the people at home that you're actually RC? Oh, wow, they think you're a, a wacko. All of this is good stuff, but it's like, it's just flashed at. It's like we're getting like a movie trailer version of what the episode could be. Mm -hmm. And then on top of it, it's got Blaster going like, Rodimus is coming home. And it cuts to Cup, Perceptor, and Grimlock standing like in some kind of big open doorway, waving their arms up down like, hooray! <laughs> so I, I can only guess that the Autobots have been missing for a while and they are worried about him, I guess? Or does every time Rodimus come home, is this the greeting he gets? <laughs> and if that's the case, I want that life. I want I want everybody in my life to treat me like they're like a, uh, a Cocker Spaniel when I come home. I would be like, hooray, you're here. Oh my gosh, it's you. <laughs> so Metroplex begins to transform to defense mode and begins firing on the four auto bodies. And it's not long until they're all subdued, assumed by the Autobots to be imposters. Human Springer and Magnus celebrate their own defeat. The next thing we see is everyone back at Draft's estate, with the four Autobodies in the big capsule, 
and the four human Autobots in the smaller tubes. Perceptor thinks he knows what he's doing, and I sure hope he does, because we have about 90 seconds of show left. <laughs> Blaster throws a switch at Perceptor's command, and we see energy flow back from the small tubes to the big one. Blaster looks a little worried as we cut away. But we rejoin the Autobots after some time passes, with Perceptor walking out with a newly restored Rodimus Springer Magnus and RC, as Drath and his thugs and Michelle are being led into squad cars by EDF agents. Did you enjoy your sojourn, Rodimus? Maybe a little too much, Perceptor. Let's go home. Autobots, transform! Yeah, and so this last line by Rodimus, as he says that, we are looking at Michelle climbing into the police car, being taken away with Victor Drath, right? And so... Once again, as a child, it's like, okay, he's talking about his love affair with Michelle, which was him drinking coffee and then dropping it on the ground. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so what, once again, this, this episode is just like full of implication without actually showing anything. Now, I normally celebrate implication, but when it's all implication and nothing is explicit, mm -hmm. it becomes imbalanced. And I feel like that this one just feels, like I said, like it feels like a movie trailer version of an episode rather than an episode yeah and then we cut away one last time to old snake who has managed to slither away undetected and is simply walking down the street oh mr draft not quite smart enough were you <laughs> they simply don't make terrorists like they used to so you guys, if that Chris Lotta voice didn't give it away, if having a chrome mask and blue pants didn't cinch it, if having something very similar to Synthoid technology and calling it exactly that didn't make it obvious, then Susan Williams hopes very much that old snake yelling, Cobra! before going into a coughing fit will be enough to send the point home. Oh, what a classic moment, too, with him raising his arms to the sky into the sunset as he goes through the coughing fit. We all remember that moment so vividly, right? Mm -hmm. But spoiler alert, it wasn't quite enough for 10-year-old me. I mean, I was pretty sure it was Cobra Commander. But as I've said before, Kid Hoover really expected to have things spelled out for him. In retrospect, I have no idea why I was like that. I was in all the smart classes. They wanted to advance me a grade in school, but my parents thought it would be bad for me socially. And yet, 47 clues weren't enough to convince me 100% that this was Cobra Commander. I think I just didn't understand why he would have a new name and not boast about who he was. I certainly wasn't thinking about the realities of being a terrorist in hiding when I was 10. Now, as an adult, I know the power of not hitting you over the head with every piece of information, but as a kid, I did not. But I did have enough sense to pop up off the couch when I heard him yell Cobra. It didn't make me 100% sure it was him, but even at 95% sure, it was still a great ending, knowing Cobra Commander is still out in the world of 2006. So what was your childhood reaction to this jersey? Yeah, I... I flipped out. I think it's worth exploring here 
how at that time, like we, we now live in a world where you have the Spider-Verse movie, mm-hmm. right? You have the Marvel movies and all these characters showing up in everybody else's movies. And you have characters from other movie franchises showing up in other movies. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I genuinely would not be surprised if somebody made like a Ghostbusters meets Goonies movie nowadays. That just seems like it's we take it for granted that all this all this stuff intersects the way and, and, and we could sneer at it. We can get cynical about it. And that, you know, it's just people playing on a nostalgia and doing a cash grab. Sure. But there's also an element and I'm not going to give the credit to the Hollywood people saying that they're thinking about this. Maybe some of them are, but this is the way some kids play, right? Like I knew kids growing up who were like, my dino writers are going to play with my GI Joes. And they're going to play with my transformers and my star Wars. They're all going to mix. Right. Mm. I didn't do that quite so much, but I mean, there was a little bit of that crossover, but I, I I remember seeing it all around me that kids just like all of the things interacted with one another. So that feels both natural that it's happening now, but also when you put it in historical context, it's really different and, and, and shockingly different because with I'm with you on this that like the whole episode, I'm like, there's no way that's Cobra Commander. <laughs> it's clearly Cobra Commander, but it can't be Cobra Commander. They're two different cartoons. Characters do not show up in other cartoons. They don't do that. Why, Jersey? Well, I don't know, but the grown-ups won't let us have that kind of joy in our lives. It would almost be <laughs> too much happiness for us, and grown-ups really like pushing us around and making us do things we don't like to do, right? I mean, I, I don't know if I would have said it that way, but that was the feeling I had back then. Is like, this would be too good if that was Cobra Commander. And I remember like characters like Hector Ramirez showing up on Gem and G.I. Joe, and I would be like, say to my friends, like, did you see that Hector Ramirez is on both shows? Does that mean they're connected? And my friends would be like, no, that doesn't mean that. They just say it has the same name. I'm like, but it's the same actor. It's the same character, you know? (laughs) Yeah, that was as much as we got of that back then. That was enough to make us excited. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And even then, it was all conjecture. It was speculation. We had no clear canonical statement so i think that that's what you were also responding to is that like it was just so unthinkable and i don't mean unthinkable in the sense of like oh that's beyond the pale that's upsetting that's sinful i mean it was like it was beyond imagination right we we, we nobody could think of such a thing like when we were kids in the 80s that oh you know it's like what if you know well I, actually i would i want to think about like what was the hannah barbera show where all the characters raced cars was the wacky races mm-hmm. that yeah like that was as close as we got, and yep. and it was, it was the Hanna-Barbera. I mean, I I know people a little bit older than me are probably like, "Hey, Great Bape is the best." I'm like, "Okay, I believe you." Jabberjaw is really cool, but I was well past that, and like I did not think that those characters were. I didn't care about Penelope Pitstop, you know. Yep. I was more into the action adventure science fiction cartoons that we were growing up on. And they didn't intersect, even though they're all, we knew, we were aware that Hasbro makes these toys and Kenner makes those toys. And we were aware that, okay, Sunbow shows feel like this, Deke shows feel like that. But the idea of them intersecting was just beyond conception. So when he does the Cobra at the end, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's Cobra Commander. It's clearly Cobra Commander. I believe it's Cobra Commander, but I knew that this is as good as it's ever going to (laughs) get. Yeah. We'll never have better than this. This was a gift. There clearly there is a kid at Sunbow someplace who told their dad to do this. And he said, <laughs> Okay, I'll do it for you. But the, only this one time, and you have to eat broccoli broccoli for the rest of your life because <laughs> no happiness is with comes without a price, right? 
So that's where I was. And I remember being almost ecstatic. It was like, it was almost like, it was like the, the happiness was outside of my body. It was almost transcendental. It was so overwhelmingly exciting that for 21 minutes ago, is, is that really him? Is that really him? And then for it to be him, anybody, and I'm not going to spoil anything, but you know, the modern equivalent would be the season two finale of the Mandalorian. Like I've talked with some star Wars fans who, when I said like, Oh, did it feel like that? Like, yeah, I felt like that. I'm like, yeah, I know. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I didn't care as much. Cause I, I like star Wars fine, but it's like, I'm not as invested. This was like that for me. It was jumping on the couch, screaming excitement. And the rest of my siblings went, why is this so important to you? I don't know, but it is. <laughs> I've talked with enough other Sunbow cartoon fans, and we all shared the, the exact same recollection of standing up, screaming, no way at the TV when he does the Cobra thing. But also feeling a vague pang of melancholy that, oh, Cobra Commander's poor. <laughs> <laughs> and he's sick. <laughs> He's coughing and wheezing. He's an old man now. I don't know how I feel about that. Cover Commander being mortal? That's that's difficult for my 12-year-old brain to, to, to grapple with. I don't know. Did I, did I cover the full range of emotions there? <laughs> well, I mean, I definitely echoed pretty much the same feelings when I was a kid. But as great as it is to know that Cobra Commander still had a future in the far future of 2006... I can't say that I'm in love with the episode now or back then. Any episode where they have to invent a new bad guy, whole cloth, who isn't even a Transformer, isn't going to go over well with me in 1986 or 2022. Especially when it's just a one-episode bad guy. Mm. Of course, the nature of skirt writing for this show made this the norm more than the exception, which is a shame. So it's focused on a bunch of human villains that I don't care about. There are zero Decepticons in this episode at oh, all. Oh, you're right. You're right. And there's nothing really special about Drath or his goons that make me want to see them again. And honestly, Snake is barely in the thing. My biggest beef is probably that the Autobots becoming human isn't treated as the miracle that it should be. They're definitely taken aback by it happening, but they get over it quick. There's no existential crisis, no amazement that Autobots can become human if they want. I know it's a 22-minute cartoon for 10-year-olds, but if you're going to open up this huge can of worms, then I'm going to need some repercussions in the dialogue. Maybe have the Autobots be so let down by how weak they are now, or miffed that they only have one mode, mm -hmm. or be glad about how small they are now, allowing them to be super sneaky. Or have Rodimus have to pee after drinking the coffee? Yeah. Give me something along those lines. Instead, they're all just using these humanoid bodies like it's a second nature or no big deal. And that doesn't feel right. I think this story needed to be a two-parter. It's really got too much story in there for just one. We needed more room for the human Autobots to forget that they can't just punch doors down and break their hand in the process. For Rodimus to wonder how he can continue without the Matrix. For these four characters to just honestly react to the craziest thing that has ever happened to them. Instead of just totally taking it in stride. And yeah, that would take two episodes. We could also spend more time with Michelle and figure out just what her deal is. 
Was she going to be disloyal to Drath, then changed her mind? Let's get some explanation in there. So it's just kind of too much. For one thing, we've never had any indication that Transformers and G.I. Joe were actually in a shared universe. You'd think they would have run into each other a bit more if they do coexist. But there's all kinds of ways around that. There's 20 years of Transformers history in the timeline from 1986 to 2005 that isn't really nailed down. Judging by what we see in the movie, it seems like the Transformer presence on Earth was scaled way back at some point. Autobot City is there, but the Autobots inhabit Cybertron's moons as well, and it seems like the Decepticons left Earth completely. So if you want, you could say that the entirety of the Sunbow G.I. Joe cartoon takes place sometime in that 20-year gap, so you wouldn't have Megatron knocking on the doors of Cobra Temple. Or you could say Transformers continuity is completely separate from G.I. Joe continuity, and both universes just had a Cobra and Cobra Commander in them. The concept of a multiverse has made such strides in recent years, it's no longer just the nerdy kids like me in Jersey who understand what that means. So this episode is totally left up to what your headcanon wants for it. And I don't want to sound overly negative on this one. Is it a great concept for the episode? Sure, mostly. I don't care for the crime boss angle much, but that's just my own personal taste. It just needed more room to deal with its heady concepts. As a kid, was it mind-blowing at the very concept of Cobra Commander possibly appearing on Transformers? Of course. Even if I needed him to say it and make it 100% clear, it was still awesome. It just needs more room to tackle the subjects that it glazes right over. The animation is fairly meh, but it's never terrible. It just feels like there's a lot to explore about the human condition with Autobots mm-hmm. becoming human. Yep. But instead, it's just a crime boss story. And I've never liked crime stories myself, although I am really into Dragnet and Ironside, so maybe it's just the devil being in the details. Anyway, I'm always glad to see Cobra Commander, one of my favorite characters, so I can't complain too much. I think everyone should see this one, especially if they're a G.I. Joe fan, but by no means is it making my top 10 list. Maybe my top 10 of season 3, but I'm not even sure about that. But I'm not here to rank anything. I have to wonder, though, was Susan Williams met with any kind of resistance when she tells her bosses that she wants to use Cobra Commander in a Transformers episode? Maybe she could only use him if he was called something else, and initially it wasn't even going to be a surprise reveal? I don't know. TF Wiki didn't have any info on that. So anyway, it's an interesting concept for sure, and I'm glad it was made, but I don't have the urge to watch it over and over. So we know what kid Jersey thought. What does adult Jersey now think of this one? Yeah, I am very much on the same page as you on this one. There's a number of ideas that are seeded in this one that point in directions that I think you, I think rightfully deduced, which is, I mean, Springer does that line. like, hey, look, those criminals may be tough, but they're only human. Oh, okay. We're going to take away your robotness and make you a human. And now you have to deal with that frailty. And, and you're going to discover what the strengths are of being a human. You're going to discover why Bumblebee likes Spike so much after all, because being human is kind of cool, right? There's advantages and there's disadvantages. And then this would be a story that would explore that. If you did this as a Star Trek Next Generation episode, you would totally do that. That that was absolutely telegraphed in the title and in that moment with Springer, right? Yeah. 
but it doesn't really do that. It feels like it's doing a sort of, I don't want to say by the numbers, but it feels like it's hitting on a lot of very recognizable tropes from crime adventure TV of the mm-hmm. time. Yep. Like I, I've already made that comparison a bunch of times. Magnum PI, The Equalizer, et cetera, et cetera. This felt like stuff I was seeing on TV on primetime at that time. And so I think I, as a child, showed up to fill in those gaps. But I, as an adult, am watching this going like, why the heck is... Why is that woman helping Rodimus? And why did she just turn on him? None of that is explained, right? And I'm not even saying it needs to be explained through dialogue. There doesn't have to be a flashback, but something, something to make me understand what her motivation is because we don't know. Like you said, we don't know if she's like playing a trick on him or what. You very correctly point out, like he doesn't have the Matrix anymore. What does that do to him, right? Or does the Matrix follow him into his human body? And what happens then? There's a lot of different cool stuff you can explore with this. Also, I'm with you. The idea of a crime syndicate, not terribly interesting. Why couldn't we have a few Decepticons get involved in this? Why couldn't we have Cyclonus get turned into a person? (laughs) Oh, my God. What if Cyclonus got turned into a people? You know, that would be so interesting. Because I think both of us are kind of like fascinated by this like rivalry between Magnus and Cyclonus. We want to see more of that. Or... Don't do that. Have Galvatron be the guy who's working with Cobra Commander. And maybe we can even have a little joke there where Galvatron's like, oh, your voice is so annoying whenever he's talking to Snake. You remind me of a guy I really hate. I'm sorry. It's just like nails on a chalkboard. You know, something like that. But yeah, you're right. There's no Decepticons in it. Although I I, I do understand that if you're going to do a story where Transformers get turned to people and have to learn about the advantages of being people, having them face a adversary that they took for granted as being lesser like a crime syndicate makes sense that's that 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 actually feels like a very logical place to take things but yeah just bringing this guy out and just being like i'm the calculating rich guy who likes this you know deal in weapons just feels even in 1986 it felt very common it didn't feel terribly surprising so i think as a child the only thing that made me really invest in the episode was is that Cobra Commander or not? Yeah. And to to a smaller degree, the idea of Rodimus having a romantic interlude was interesting. Rodimus might have a girlfriend? That's interesting. That's <laughs> really, that's, I want to know more about that. Did you enjoy your sojourn, Rodimus? Maybe too much. Whoa, Rodimus, I'm fanning myself over here. Did this just get rated R? <laughs> so th- those two things I think were interesting, but I don't think they're enough to make it a like a classic, oh, you got to watch this one. Like I said at the top, I think the only real thing that makes this one really memorable is the surprise ending, which isn't that big of a surprise. So uh, I I think it suffers from the fact that it needed more space to do what it set out to do and what it set out to do kind of got spread out. I think if you had fewer Transformers get turned to people, that might have helped. And I think if you would have had some Decepticons get turned to people too, that would have been really interesting. How cool would it be for somebody like Swindle would be a character who I would think of who would like really lean into the advantages of being a person. Right? You know what Swindle would look like as a human? What? Herb Tarlick from WKRP. Five, ninety-six, ninety-seven, ninety-eight, ninety-nine. It's illegal, Herb. 
It's free enterprise, Les. I raffle off my paycheck to my fellow workers here in the building, and for minimal investment, they get a chance to pick up a fast buck. And for minimal effort, I get a chance to pick up 1,000 tax-free dollars. It's wrong. It's American. He totally would. <laughs> oh, my God. And what I love about that is, like, exploring the whole idea of, like, the revulsion, the body horror of it would be an interesting thing to explore. Not get all Cronenberg necessarily, but some of them might be really repulsed by this, and some of them might, like, really lean into it. Like, who would like it, who would not? There wasn't space to do that. Nope. I want a scene where... You know they gotta act. They gotta they gotta go. And Ultra Magnus starts to run, and then he yep. like contorts in a weird way and just falls down. And he's like, "Oh, yep. I forgot I can't transform." Yeah. Well, I mean, if if it's that natural to you to do that, absolutely you would do that, yep. right? So that's that's the thing that it feels like the episode just does the human thing as a device instead of it being like a, a philosophical wondering of what would the world look like when you're this and you turn into that. Yep. And yeah, we've talked about this a lot in the sh on the show is like this idea of like transformers are creatures that don't have one canonical form. Rodimus is just as much Rodimus when he's a truck as when he's a robot. So how do you deal with the fact that you have now been cut in half, literally like yeah. you have half of your abilities now and, and you're tiny and weak and frail. That's all fascinating. So, yeah, it just feels like it, 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 it proposes, whether it meant to or not, a lot of interesting places to go and doesn't get anywhere in there. And it really feels like somebody was just trying to write an episode of Simon and Simon, but with science fiction robots. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm trying not to be really hard on it, but it does feel like it's... This is one of those moments where I feel like something is of its time in mm -hmm. the sense that not to forgive it for being you know, sexist or racist because it's not, I, but I mean in the sense that it really feels like it was reacting to what was happening on television at the time and just playing into that expectation. Offering a twist, I don't know where the Cobra Commander idea came from. That that is That would be a really interesting story to know. Mm -hmm. But yeah, for the most part, it just it has a lot of neat stuff and it doesn't quite land any place that feels like, oh, what a what a ride that was, except mm -hmm. for when he says Cobra at the end. Yeah. <laughs> so and 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 that wouldn't be enough today, right? I think the only reason that worked the way it did was because as we explored, it was so uncommon back then. It was so unusual for things to cross over in that way. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, we have the CWDC shows where everybody totally. shows up on everybody's show at one point in the year. And we yeah. have Into the Spider-Verse with multiple Spider-Mans. We have Spider-Man No Way Home with, spoilers, multiple Spider-Man in it. And yep. Doctor totally. Strange and the Multiverse of Madness has just come out. So it's like, this is commonplace these days. Back then, not at all. No Way Home's trailer shows the new kid Spider-Man, the British kid from the MCU movies, and Doc Ock from Spider-Man 2 with Tobey Maguire, right? They're both on yeah. the screen. And he says, hello, Peter. You know, it's like, that doesn't spoil anything. It's like, all right, right there, you see that, okay, th these two movies crossed over in a substantial way. So, yeah, yeah, it, 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 it makes it, I think that's partially what my adult lens is informing too is that like this kind of crossover thing has been proven to work and not be that hard so they could have leaned harder into it but 
it was of its time. That didn't happen back then, yeah. hardly ever at all. So the fact that it happened at all was momentous. It shook a lot of kids' hornet's nests. Yeah. <laughs> However, whatever that means. So, yeah, I I can't say this is one that I like to go back to. Uh, I mean, it's got a lot of Rodimus in it, so you'd think I'd love it. But the, the, the Rodimus stuff just feels like it's just moving through a bunch of expected steps and yeah. doesn't really make me feel anything new for Rodimus. So yeah, it, it's almost like it needed to be a two-parter to deal with all this stuff. But yeah. if it was a two-parter, it would have been two episodes with no Decepticons. I mean, unless you sneak them in there somewhere mm-hmm. and it's like two episodes dealing with a crime boss who we've never seen before and we never see again. So that is yeah. not a great answer either. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I, and I, I just, I feel absolutely nothing for Victor Drath. Right. right, I believe he's solutions. voiced by Philip L. Clark, who does Dead uh-huh. End, who we love. Yep. So there's, you know, there's that, but that's about the only good thing I have to say about him. Yep. And and the thugs are funny in that they're basically playing them like 1930s heavies from like an Untouchables, yeah. you know, film or something. But they look like they just walked off the set of some bad canon film from 1987 so i like that juxtaposition but it's not enough it's not enough to charm me yeah this this episode this episode just doesn't feel charming in the way some of the other ones have right yeah so yeah i i I, i'm sorry if this is like somebody's favorite i don't mean to come down on it too hard but it's just like i i don't have strong feelings about it outside of the cobra commander thing and a memory that just wouldn't happen today so yeah but Hoover, I anticipate the next episode is going to fill me with big, big feelings. <laughs> well, next up, we're covering Grimlock's new brain, mm. season three, episode twenty-four on Tubi, and there are only ten episodes left in the series now. Wow, we're coming up in the final countdown now. Grimlock's new brain. This is one I've watched more recently. I'll warn everybody: it's an ACOM episode, so it doesn't look that great. And there's a lot of really ridiculous nonsense in it in terms of it's called Grimlock's New Brain, people. Remember Spock's New Brain <laughs> or Spock's Brain? You know, it's yeah. like we're, we're in that territory with this story. But it's the origin story of one of my favorite combiner teams. And I love the concept around them. And I love the, the narrative around their birthing even though there's a lot of ridiculousness surrounding it. So like, it's like this one little acorn in the middle that I just like have so much affection for, but it's like, you got to like push through a lot of gross stuff to get to the acorn. (laughs) (laughs) Well, much like season two, season three is not done introducing new characters yet. There's only Mm -hmm. a few episodes left of the season. Yeah. Just like season two was introducing new characters until the end. Season three is the same way. Yeah, yeah, we're getting our own like version of the protective bots where it's like, oh, they're just here. Oh, <laughs> oh, they're gone. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm looking forward to talking about that that one with you. So, everybody, season three, episode twenty four on Tubi or Hasbro Pulse's channel on YouTube. Oh man, thank you, Hoover, for these discussions. I always feel like I just love the show in a newer way every time we talk about it. <laughs> so, if you want to explore humanity through drinking bad coffee with a lady whose motives you don't know. You could write a few words about what this project means to you. And uh, Hoover, we got a new review. That's right. We have a new one 
And it's not even from the United States. It's not even from here. It's not even from where we are. And, and listen to this, everybody. Listen to this. Look how kind this is. The, the headline is Funny, Insightful, Great Hosts. By the way, I want to thank Andy, who wrote this review, for using funny first. I like to be considered funny. I don't think of myself as a funny person, but it's nice to know that somebody thinks I'm funny. Or maybe they're talking about you. They say, I have enjoyed this podcast since it started, from Jersey's insights into storytelling to Hoover's brilliant theories and choice <laughs> 80s toy commercial selects. The pair seem to strike the right balance effortlessly. A thoughtful, sincere, and funny approach to a cartoon series that I've loved so much as a child. And that is from Andreas Grease, Andy Francesco. Thank you, Andy. That is awesome of you. That just that just made my day, and 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 a couple more. That's amazing that there's someone in Greece right now who knows who we are. Yeah, and and who likes Transformers the way we like Transformers. Yeah, that makes me happy. So, Andy, who's your favorite Transformer? It's the only thing that I would like to know if, that that didn't get into the review. But <laughs> yes, Andy showed you the way, everybody. All you got to do is go to wherever you listen to our podcast or go to your favorite social place where you talk with other people about things that you like and just write a few words about this. This is what the show means to me. This is what like that Jersey brings. This is what like that Hoover brings. Make sure to use the word brilliant for Hoover's theories. <laughs> I love Hoover's brilliant theories. Like that, that's something that when we were talking on the phone for the last 25 years, I certainly would agree with, but I didn't think anybody else would agree with it. <laughs> Which Transformer do you like the best and why? And then just share that into the world, the link to our podcast, or if you give us a review, you don't have to link to the podcast because it's already there. And that helps more people find this project. It sends a signal into the internet who is combing all the time going like, where are the signals of things that are important? Well, that sends that signal so that more people will find this thing because you can't be the only one who loves Transformers this way, right? So connect, make connections in this world. Thanks to everybody who does do that. Thank you, Andy. Hoover. Since you make the brilliant choices for 80s commercials, can you give us one more commercial to go spend our parents' money? <laughs> well, you can always have a look at our tea Public store at tpublic.com slash user slash 4 million years later. And there we have some t-shirt designs. You can you, you don't have to get them on a t-shirt. You can get them on stickers. You can get them on cell phone cases. Hmm. There's all kinds of ways to get them. And the sticker is pretty small, only a couple inches long and pretty cheap. So you could just get it and put it on your trash can, put it on your desk, whatever. So it's a neat, cheap way to support us. And we don't get all the money, but we get a little tiny piece of the money. (laughs) And every little bit helps. Not that we have like gigantic costs to make the show, but it does take time. It takes a lot of time to put this mm-hmm. show together. So. And we are financially in the red when it comes to like hosting the mm-hmm. website name and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So we have not cleared into the green as of yet. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks to everybody who does go support us on the T Public store. Okay, the show drops on Thursdays at 4millionyearslater.com and in podcatchers everywhere. Until next time, I have been Jersey Drozd of 4millionyearslater.com and rss.jdrozd.com for everything I make. And I've been only Hoover. Only by. Bye-bye. Episode synopses are from imdb.com and some episode information taken from tfwiki.net. Closing theme is by Nick Mahalik, based on the original closing theme by Ford Kinder and Ann Bryant. You can find more of Nick's music at soundcloud.com slash nicholas-mahalik. That's spelled N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S dash 
M-E-H-A-L-I-C-K. Find us on Facebook under 4 Million Years Later, and you can email us at 4millionyearslater at gmail.com. Visit 4millionyearslater.com, and if you haven't yet, please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. You know how it works. I want your spaghetti. <laughs>